Good afternoon, church. It's good to see you all. Grace and peace to you. So today we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, uh, verse 35 to 48. Um, So let's read the text, and if you want to, you can stand as we read it together. I'll just try to go down here and see if it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. You may sit down. So Jesus' ministry is starting to make waves. He's attracting huge crowds. Sometimes thousands of people are coming out to see him. Some are left fascinated others furious, and some literally decide to drop everything they have in their hands to join his uh, band of travelers. Last Sunday, we heard about Jesus' teaching about not to worry and to trust God in all areas of our lives. That's an ongoing challenge and something that requires a daily surrender from all of us. And the teaching we're looking at today, I think, is nonetheless challenging. Jesus is getting to the very core of our humanness and what being his disciple looks like. In today's text that we just read, Jesus paints the picture of a man who's gone away for a wedding and meanwhile has set his servants in charge of his estate. We hear about the good servants and the unfaithful one. The good servants run to open the door when the master returns. They are ready, prepared, eager to welcome him and provide for him whatever he asks. The unfaithful servant, on the other hand, knows very well what is expected of him and what he's supposed to do, but deliberately chooses to go against this, neglecting his duties toward the people around him 
abusing those he's supposed to be taking care of and ends up being com caught completely off guard at the return of his master. I was discussing this text with a friend earlier this week, and she said um, she didn't quite appreciate, appreciate Jesus' pedagogics here. If you do this, you'll be rewarded, but if you'll do this, you'll be punished. And I agree that such thinking, thinking may lead to doing things purely out of fear for what will happen if you don't. But was that actually what we read? I think when we read carefully, that's actually not what's going on here. Um, I don't think we should let the text off the hook that easily. Because um, we, or at least I'll speak for myself, I, I'm not very comfortable about talking about divine judgment. Um, but if we are aware of what is good and choose not to do it, then we are not participating in God's kingdom. And God's judgment is also his promise that justice will prevail in the end of the final settlement and doing away with sin and death. It's his promise of restoration and recreation of a worn and tattered world, which is really a source of hope. Especially for victims of injustice, these promises are life. It's what sustains and gives life and gives light in even the darkest hour. Jesus calls his disciples, including us, to be dressed ready for service, to keep our clothes on and keep the light on. But what are we supposed to be prepared for? What are we looking for? Is it, does he talk about his second coming? Because that's certainly something that will happen at an hour that we don't expect. But I think there's something more here, because we don't believe in a God who merely visited the earth uh, for 33 years and then went away, left it alone, and uh, will come back someday. Jesus is very clear in his promise that um, he is not leaving, leaving. He says in Matthew 28, 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus is here. God is present on earth. He's in our neighborhood. And we are called to be his servants and his friends, and we are his children. We are called to partner with him in his kingdom here on earth today. A different kingdom. One that can be easily missed if we do not pay attention. Because it rarely looks like we expect it to. So do we recognize it? Do we recognize Jesus when he comes? As we just heard Jesus say, the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And as other passages in scripture reveal, he will probably not even look like we expect him to. An oblivious wanderer on his way to Emmaus. A gardener, a guy frying fish on the fire by the beach. The disciples didn't recognize Jesus at first then. So it seems that the only thing we actually can expect is that it will not be as we expect. There are lots of surprise elements here, as well as elements of, of mystery, of uncertainty, of having to trust. It seems Jesus wants to kind of leave us on our toes, listening, looking, searching, 
asking, is that you, Jesus? But if we don't have a clue what to look for, how are we to recognize Jesus when he comes? What does it look like to be actively waiting in the already but not yet of our time and to keep our lamps burning? I think the first thing we could start with is simply learning to be present in our circumstances as they are right now. Resisting the temptation to live either in the past or in the future, depending on your personality. <laughs> um, it's so easy to say, oh, but when I finish my studies, when I get married, when I move to this other place, when the kids get older, when I get that job. But God doesn't, tr he doesn't ask you to start trusting him tomorrow. He calls you to follow him where you are today, with what you have and what you don't have right now. As uh, Dallas Willard reminds us in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, I think we maybe have it here, yeah. God has yet to bless anyone except that where they actually are. So if we want to meet Jesus, we need to be present in our lives. Lifting our eyes from the small screens, looking people in the eyes, actually listening to hear and understand and not just waiting till it's my turn to talk. Daring not to flee reality into the latest escapism of your choice, but rather risk being silent long enough for the muddy water of our souls to settle and become clear. Because God is not known for yelling. I think we also, uh, this, this calls us to be attentive, to be alert. Um, and one way to do that, I think, is to remind ourselves and each other of God's promises, of God's presence. Like we do every Sunday here when we gather in church. Because if we think about it, there is so much around us that try to do everything in their power to influence us and pull us in a certain direction, telling us what we need to buy, what we need to do, what we need to eat or look like, or how to live our lives to be happy or successful. But what if we, as followers of Christ, were to make just as big an effort to surround ourselves with things that constantly remind us of what God says about who we are and what we need? Reminders of his promises to us, his goodness and his presence. It could be, I have a picture of this, uh, yeah, I don't know if you, any of you have seen this before. It's called Christuskransen, or uh, the Wreath of Christ. Um, it was developed by a Swedish evangelical Lutheran bishop called Martin Lönnebo. And every pearl represents a topic of meditation or prayer. Um, so it is the pearl of God, that's the golden one, a pearl of silence, pearl of baptism, of love, of the resurrection, etc. So that could be a tool to help remind us of God in our daily life. Or it could be uh, hanging notes on your fridge or on your bathroom mirror with a Bible verse or something you're thankful for. It could be setting an alarm on your phone uh, every day at noon to say the Lord's Prayer, stop whatever you do for two minutes and say that prayer. 
Uh, and through Lent this year, the season that we're in right now, the 40 days leading up to Easter, uh, I've been keeping this keychain in my pocket. It's nothing special about it. It's an ordinary keychain. But for me, I've decided that it is to serve as a reminder to look for Christ in every person I meet, on the bus, on the metro, on the streets, at work, or other places. So I keep this in the pocket of my jacket, and every time I reach for my lip balm or my keys, or just to warm my fingers, I feel this keychain, and I'm reminded of uh, Colossians 3.11, which says that Christ is in all, Christ is all and is in all. So those are just some small things, and I'm certainly no expert in this topic. I have a lot to learn, and I hope to learn from you guys, and I would love to see more conversations on this, uh, that we can help uh, teach each other and remind each other of how to look for God in our daily lives. There's also a sense of urgency in Jesus' words, a call to be ready. Because things are happening around us, and God is already at work. His kingdom has come near, it's already sprouting. As God says through the prophet Isaiah, See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And as I was pre preparing, preparing for this sermon, uh, I got this picture in my mind of a child who comes home, bursts in the door, and is bubbling over with excitement to tell of what just happened out there, words flowing out on both exhale and inhale, irrespective of any particular order. And in a way, I think that is kind of how creation is reacting to God's kingdom, popping up all around, and to the expectancy of what is to come when the current sprouts will shoot out into full bloom. We are invited to come and see, to touch, to smell, to taste, and to join in on this, to participate. In Romans 8, Paul is comparing how the whole creation is longing uh, to see God's children revealed and the glory of God covering the earth. He's comparing it to a pregnant woman who is longing to see her baby and for her pains of pregnancy and birth to pass. Uh, and I would like to read Romans um, 8, which perhaps already is up on the screen. It's from the Message Translation, which I think is a beautiful rendition of the Bible by theologian Eugene Peterson. And uh, yeah, I read for, from Romans 8, verse 22 to 25. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We are also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us. But the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy. 
I really like this. It talks about hope and how hope grows in us in every circumstance if we make way for it. And God is inviting us to be joyful in our time of waiting, even when we cannot see the signs of his working. Sometimes we get the grace to see and to feel and experience God's tangible presence on earth and in our lives. But most times, I think the experience for most of us is that we, we don't really feel it all the time. We hope for it, we long for it, we search for it, and from time to time we catch a glimpse of it. And uh, reflecting on what characterizes his faith, uh, a guy called Pete Gregg, who is the founder of the global 24-7 prayer rooms movement, uh, I think we have the quote, he says, the predominant experience of true disciples is less a continual delight in God's intimate intimate presence than a continual desire for that presence. The, the desire for God is a delight in itself. I find myself, unlike an atheist, less in the vitality in my experience of God than the consistency in my quest for God. And this ache, this ennui, this relentless groan, this unresolved chord, this scanning of the crowd for the face I know, this has become my delight. I like that. So, to wrap up, I think we'll uh, return to the parable because it has a surprising twist. When the master comes home and these good servants eagerly come and open the door for him, instead of doing the, the thing everyone would expect, to sit down and be fed and, be, and to rest, he, um, he actually, the master, he flips the whole thing around. He starts himself to serve the servants and have them sit down. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait for them. And I imagine the disciples must have been very puzzled hearing this, because what kind of master would do such a thing? But this is the God that we believe in, who, as it says in Philippians 2.7, emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man. The God who turns everything we thought we knew upside down and lays himself down and pours himself out to the great love of his life, humans. Calling us to surrender all to him as he surrender all to us and raising us up again in his great mercy every time we fall short. The master who chooses to serve the God who chooses to die and who raises us up with himself from the grave, the love that sustains us and meets us every day. So let us practice being present, being attentive, and keep reminding each other of who God is so that when he comes, we will probably, maybe, hopefully recognize him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you, that you may know that he is gracious to you.
May the Lord shine his face upon you, that you may be in his peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the Lord and serve the world and serve each other joyfully.